Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Loveless Biomedical Podcast. Hello, my name is Jake McDonald. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week we're joined by Melanie Doyle Isley, and we're going to talk about medical countermeasures and how you develop and approach drug development in the context of drugs that might be utilized for something that is funded usually through non-dilutional funding and is targeted towards diseases that are a little bit outside the norm, but sometimes can be applicable to diseases that are often relevant to clinical settings. And, and I have Melanie joining me today, and I'm going to ask Melanie some something that's going to embarrass her right away. And Melanie has a lot of very important roles within Loveless. She's the director of life sciences, and she's a very leading senior, pretty famous scientist in the context of the area we're talking about. But probably among her most important roles is provider of Girl Scout cookies. (laughs) (laughs) So So tell me about your role within Girl Scouts and importantly how we get girl scout cookies delivered and are you going to kick back here what's going on well you'd think i got to kick back but actually <laughs> no um my daughter she has been a girl scout since she was a kindergartner over um she's in sixth grade now uh, i am a cadet leader which means from sixth seventh eighth graders i run around with these kids and make sure that uh, they can sell their cookies earn their money and then go to camp with it Um, I hustle the cookies just as much as my child does, even though we're not supposed to. Uh, So we really, I have cookies here at work. I have a uh, QR code. So if you need cookies, I can hook you up. That's a plug, I think. Yes, exactly. So it sounds like being in Girl Scouts is like herding cats. I imagine working medical countermeasures is also like herding cats because there's so many different variables and there's so many different things that you have to think about when somebody has a new drug. And let's just say I'm someone working in a garage or someone working at Pfizer. Either way, I have a potential drug that's going to work for something in radiation or uh, some sort of chemical injury or some sort of bio threat. And just for definition, uh, typically medical countermeasures are targeted at chemical biological, radiation, or nuclear, or other types of threats where you're trying to develop some sort of intervention in that. And so, Melanie, from a, I'm going to work backwards because I know you, you know, I wanted to talk to you about what some of the things that drive the things on your side that make this complex, complex. But from a, I have a drug and I have to think about where I need to go from a regulatory standpoint, what's unique with a medical countermeasure that's different from if I'm using a traditional drug development route? It's really because we can't test it in the model needed. So for instance, if you're looking at a radiation incident or you're looking at a biological incident, they were not readily available for us to test therapeutics or treatments. So there's something that the FDA came up with called the animal rule in which we utilize animals specifically to be surrogates for humans in these types of conditions. So for instance, we look at radiological fallout, we look at different absorption patterns, we look at things like anthrax, plague, tularemia, and even most recently, the SARS outbreak. So all of that was done specifically in animals because we cannot do it only in humans. So, so one thing I think that's unique is, is oftentimes that interaction with the FDA is a little bit different. Usually what we see is the interaction with the FDA on the non-clinical side. Like, hey, this is what I'm going to do in my animal to get to the clinic. But in this case, we're actually 
kind of designing a clinical trial within an animal. And how have you seen that kind of work? And what are the things that, that you think about in terms of setting up that animal model in which you're trying to represent a clinical case? But what are, what are the types of things? Want everything from how do you select the species to what are the things you measure? And I mean, use any example. You could use radiation as an example, because I know you work a lot in that space. So similar to what we do with a standard drug, we look what's best for the actual um, injury. So for instance, if the injury is most applicable in a dog model or a primate model, then that's the model we would primarily use for that testing. Um, when it comes to the therapeutics or treatments, we're looking at what is the best way we can translate that drug to the human condition. So that could be endpoints, that can be based on lethality, and we're looking for survival. Um, it could just be pathology changes. So all of those things pretty much interact with one another to design your actual study endpoints. What's very different is a lot of these things are driven primarily by uh, previous approvals and also what division of the FDA that you're going towards. And based on that, then you would build your program. Now, if it's a medical countermeasure, isn't is there a specific group within the FDA you work with, or is it usually a collaboration depending on the type of drug it is, and with a medical countermeasure specialist? Like, how does that work? It's several different groups, and it also depends on your route. So, for instance, there's an imaging group um, for radiological imaging. You've got some medical countermeasures even still go through the standard CEDAR or CBER. Um, it really depends on what the mechanism of action is for your material. And so these projects are usually funded through a couple of different funding agencies. I know there's uh, through the NIH is typically NIAID, for example, to, uh, takes a lot of the burden on. And I know uh, BARDA obviously plays an important role. What you know, we got through kind of the FDA interaction. What's important from your perspective to the people who carry the purse strings. I mean, what, what, you know, which is, you know, what a lot of people want to know. What, what do they want? Uh, what, what is their goal, uh, both in advancing medications, which I guess that's obvious, right? But I know sometimes they're really interested in prioritizing medication, medications that could advance and also be used for other things, for example. And, and so when we're approaching a funding agency, what are the things we think about when we're trying to design and sell them on our product? One of the first things that the government's been looking for most recently over the last 10 years, repurposing of drugs. And that allows them to take something that's either already on the market, already approved or further along in um, the approval process and then translate that over into a medical countermeasure. Uh, that also allows them not to burden enough of the cost or purse strings associated with uh, developing the drug, looking at basic toxicity and then also stockpiling it. Yeah, that makes sense. I think one of the things I've seen just looking at it over the past few years is early on, BARDA and, and other agencies like that, that became a clearinghouse for small biotech who was looking for non-dilutional funds. And I think they in a sense, the funding agencies got burned by really, you know, you know, funding a lot of those small biotechs that there have been some successes, uh, organizations like Argentum and others who have had some success. And, and that's been great. But I think, you know, overall, they've had some challenges. So I've, I've seen over the past few years, uh, Barta really being a little bit more selective and but still promoting some small companies who have promise and really uh, can can deliver, but also trying to bring in larger companies uh, that, you know, that that uh, through 
specific agreements and things like that. And that's probably to try and take advantage of the drugs they already have and their wherewithal to be able to advance products, wouldn't you say? Yeah. A lot of the things they're also doing is working across all the medical countermeasures. So they're trying to say, great, if I can get this drug, I can develop it for one medical countermeasure. Can I then move that next step over to a very similar mechanism. So for instance, you have um, Argentum's a good example. They got an approval for Silverlon specifically for a chemical injury, and now they're shifting that over to radiological injury. And so they're looking to do that more and more in different types of uh, models. A lot of the uh, biologicals are primarily looking at cross-plague, tularemia, and anthrax. They're seeing what they can compare and add on to one another. It seems like they're, they're looking for silver bullets that can kind of attack multiple things. But but it's and we laugh about that a little bit. But, you know, I know you just participated in a workshop where you're looking at uh, similarities between sulfur mustard injury and radiation injury. I mean, who would have thunk? I mean, that seemed crazy. If you would have told me 10 years ago, you'd be having that workshop. I'd say that's crazy. Right. But but people are really starting to look at that and look at that and take that seriously because there may be overlapping mechanisms and thus treatments that might be applicable to multiple modalities here, right? There's a lot. Um, we've seen many companies that have looked specifically at long-term radiation injury. So we know fibrosis is caused specifically from acute chemical injury, and then it's also a secondary response to certain levels of radiation. And that's just one example, looking at the lung. If you're looking specifically in dermal injury, it's very similar. You get the same necrosis pattern. It's just the timing that's different. So, so, you know, so we're working backwards here. So we know I have a drug. I want to look at this. I have, you know, I understand there's a little bit of complexities working with the FDA. You know, the funding agencies, they're kind of changing their stance a little bit and expanding how they go about things. Now, let's get to the hard part. So you've defined what's what's what you can get in, in an animal model. And and that is uh, you, you work with the FDA and you say, OK, this is what's going to work. This is what we're trying to model in a translational setting. And then you get there and it's not as easy as everyone wants. Right. And, and, I, and, and you're the queen of this because you're in often in the trenches with these things. And and I think, you know, the funding agencies in the FDA want models that are robust, that they look the same if we do it in Albuquerque or if we do it in uh, West Jefferson, wherever we're, we're doing the model. And so the question is robustness of models, applicability of models, uh, consistency, all those sorts of things. What are the things that give you gray hairs about <laughs> setting up and, and getting these models to work. And, and I, I know you, you've gone through a lot of this, but what are some of the things that, that really people should consider because it's not as easy as it might sound? Just something as simple as where you get your animals. We've seen huge shifts in curves, both the radiation and other studies associated with getting the exact same vendor supplied rhesus macaques over a six month period. They look Physically, they're supposed to be the same, but when they arrive, they look completely different. They're both rhesus macaques, and I get two completely different responses from a radiation standpoint. Um, we had a huge issue specifically with rodents in the past, um, looking at differences with getting different batches of rodents from two different locations of the exact same vendor, um, and they were supposedly the same genetically. Um 
that gives me a lot of gray hairs. I feel like if you don't have a control, it's really rolling the dice sometimes when you run your studies. Um, everyone's in the same boat. One of the big things you talked about is robustness. Uh, we have spent a lot of time working with collaborators throughout the U.S. specifically in making sure that a model here can also work at several of our other facilities throughout the U.S. With that, that talks about animal care, supportive care, what medical um, interventions you can and cannot do based on your regulatory agencies associated um, at your institute. So, for instance, your, my IACUC at Loveless is very different than the IACUC at some of the academic facilities. We allow different things. All of those things would change your model or could change your model. Um, even something as simple as assays. You know, we're all doing PCR assay, but a lot of times that PCR sensitivity could be different in different places. Uh, running ELISA's, Loveless is at 5,000 plus feet. That totally changes models because especially when we're working with coagulopathies, we're going to have a different hematocrit, just plain and simple. So already our baseline is different. So one of the things that I think about is when you're looking at a lot of subtle factors that can have big impacts. It's because in a sense, you're working with biological systems in difficult models in which you're kind of teetering on the edge when you're looking at a phenotype, right? Because you're, you have something that, for example, with radiation, you can have a pretty steep dose response. You have to have a very, very tight control on what your dose is and then then even within that all these other variables can come into play and all bets are off right and so you end up with these situations where whether it's with uh, biological material infectious disease or whatever you almost have to develop redeploy and assess the model every time you use the model oh yeah and and it's it's its own model every time you use it right you do you have that's why you have controls every model has to have controls when you run it when you're working with medical countermeasures you cannot rely on controls from another source that's very different than toxicology so um, if you work with a pathologist they will yell at you if you run a toxicology study without air controls however there's enough control data out there if we really had to do it we could because if there's an injury we'd be able to see it that's not the case for a medical countermeasure i know one of the things that that you've been really excited about is that that we've been investing a lot in <laughs> biomarkers and and how to you know expand the analysis and how you characterize animal models from an immunology perspective etc what i know you know the the easy approach to these models is do they survive or not and that's obviously a very clear okay. endpoint and 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 Feet so up, yeah i get i get that and, that and that certainly makes a lot of sense um and 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 but how can we advance and move the science and what are the challenges that we've run into with the use of biomarkers uh, for better understanding the disease and better understanding the pharmacology when we do these interventions? A lot of the assays that we work with are not translationable across all species. So for instance, we have great reagents for non-human primates. We have really good reagents for canines or um, rodents. We don't have those reagents specific to ferrets or non or uh, mini pigs. 
that became a huge deficit on a lot of our radiation programs because we're looking at um, just subtle injury and things that are associated with the subsyndromes to radiation. We couldn't track those in the mini pig. The reagents were not reliable. Um, they were available, yes. They just were not reliable. They were not repeatable. Um, and I'm not even talking about across facilities. I'm talking about in, within the same facility, two different kits from the same vendor were not giving the same response. Um, that was eight plus years ago. I know a lot has changed. There have been a lot of money that's been set forth specifically in reagents and things like that. Um, I don't think that problem's fixed. We're still seeing that across the board. And I know a lot of people that worked in hamsters and ferrets most recently with the pandemic, they had reagent issues. They could not find assays associated with some of the translatable endpoints that they wanted to look at. So great. So as we're working back through this, this, this sounds like a, a quagmire. So great. Good news is biotech, you get some nice non-dilutional funds and you might be able to advance your therapy. The, the bad news is it's really complex and it's doable, but complex. And you run into a lot of these problems. One, one, one issue that I've seen is, is you know, you're, you've named a lot of different species that you utilize. And, and I think you utilize those based on the specifics and the translatability of that particular animal model for representing human disease, right? Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned the challenge of different rhesus. How's that going with you right now for rhesus? <laughs> it's been fantastic, actually. <laughs> um, since the pandemic, actually right before the pandemic, um, we have not been able to get our hands on rhesus. So that um, put a halt in almost all radiation research throughout the U.S., um, and for companies throughout the world. Uh, most recently, uh, there have been several scientists that worked to pull everything that we had out of the archives, any data over the last 20 years that anyone had in a cinnamon macaque. And um, in October, there was a publication specifically showing the relatability between those two strains. And with that, many of our collaborators have been able to move forward now, switching from a rhesus macaque to a cinnamolus macaque, um, using whatever radiation source that that institute used previously. So Loveless had previously done um, cinnamolus macaque work prior to the rhesus, and we'll be radiating cinnos again come April. <laughs> Looking forward to that. So, so you know, so we've identified now. You have a model system. The rationale for doing it, we're trying to replace clinical trials and 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 the complexities of doing it, and and some of the the need for specific endpoints. Some of which uh, up to include lethality. Now, I know you've uh, take animal welfare very serious, and you've uh, served on our animal care and use committee, and you uh, are, are very involved with a lot of initiatives relative to training and animal use and animal use reduction and all those sorts of things. But for this particular pathway, you have to use them. And, and so I guess one question I asked uh, you is to speak to how, what kind of enrichment, how do we approach uh, utilizing and, and, and ensuring uh, uh, as well as we can positive welfare for the animals and uh, reduction of use and those sorts of things, knowing that you have to use them to get through this source. But what, what are some of the things that we utilize to ensure we respect the use of animals for this important uh, need? The first thing we do specifically is looking at um, how a model will respond and then we try to use the least amount of number of animals. And we model that in cohorts. So we can actually always cut off cohorts at the end of a program and use less animals if it's not necessary based on the response we're seeing. 
Um, the second thing that we do is we really work on with our veterinary team and our attending vet here, uh, making sure that we can um, observe the animals very closely and minimize any risk to undue pain and distress. So you're putting additional supportive care, almost ICU style settings, even if you're not um, at that higher tier medical management to ensure that the animals uh, we're doing the best we can for the animals themselves. What's your favorite part about your job? I honestly really love seeing the work at the end. So um, what's kept me here for 15 years is one, we get to do lots of crazy things um, and we're helping people. We're getting drugs to the market. Um, I really do enjoy uh, seeing endpoints, the translation at the end. Um, we create these models that are really difficult. Um, they wear people down and I understand that. Um, by the end, when you can picture it and translate it into helping humans, helping, um, you know, figure out what could or could not um, be utilized. <laughs> um, if there's a radiation incident, that's what I prefer. Um, I jokingly used to say years ago that we've tested a lot of drugs and some of them work and some of them don't. And um, I will be the first to sign up for certain drugs, even if it's a sign a waiver because it's not approved yet because of the, some of the things that we do here. I know it's, it's, uh, it's always fun to look I was just reading the newspaper the other day and reading about some changes that are coming with some of the um, drugs that are on the market that you worked on and that, and that we worked on and that we can see the fruits of our labor and that people are using these medications and they're a part of, we see commercials about them and it's like, they're wow, I remember, magazine. Yeah, yeah, I remember when thing. that was, you know, in our hood back in yeah. the lab. <laughs> and so that's always fun. And, and, uh, you know, you've been a huge part of many drugs and, and uh, a lot of the development of our capabilities, both in medical countermeasures and drug development at Loveless. And thank you for your time today and participating and, uh, sharing it with us about your Girl Scout strategy <laughs> and medical countermeasures. And thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Loveless Biomedical Podcast. 